0: What is your conception of God? In other words, when you think of who God is, what are the thoughts that fill your mind? The Bible gives us so many ways to think about God. In Isaiah 6, we see Him high and lifted up so glorious that it, Isaiah describes His train filling the temple, His glory filling all the earth. We see a glimpse of His radiant light in Ezekiel chapter 1 and in Revelation chapter 4 as the Bible describes Him shining and, and, it, and it describes these colors and this radiance. In many places, including Ephesians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible describes God as a loving Father, caring for His children, adopting people into His own family. David, in Psalm 23, describes God as a tender shepherd who meets our needs and defends us. The list could go on and on. The Bible also envisions God as a mighty warrior. A mighty warrior. And that's what we have in Isaiah 59. We've read this already. God is a conquering warrior. A mighty warrior. A supreme rescuer. This is who God is. Here in Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 14, the Bible says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered. That there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. And a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. And wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds. So will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries. Repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands. He will render repayment so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer, a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgressions or transgression declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, don't stop talking about it. Don't stop declaring His glory. Don't stop speaking His praise. Truth has departed, but a conqueror will come and bring forth truth. He has conquered. He has conquered. He has brought forth truth. That truth has arrived. The Bible tells us in the book of Psalms, in the 24th Psalm, it makes this statement about our God in verses 7-10. through Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. The Lord of the armies. He is the King of glory. The Bible tells us in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 20, verses 10 and following, For I hear many whispering, Terror is on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say, all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our vengeance on him. Look what it says. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. The New American Standard has this as a dread champion. The New King James has this as a mighty, awesome one. The Lord is with me, an awesome, mighty one. The Lord is with me as a dread warrior. The Lord is with me as a dread champion. They come up against us. They come up against us. They want us to thwart the name of the Lord. They want us to renounce the name of the Lord. But the Lord is with me. He is a glorious warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will not, will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. Just a sampling, folks just a sampling of how the Bible describes our God as a mighty warrior. He is not afraid. He is not fearful. He is not wondering how it will turn out. He doesn't feel a sense of loss. He doesn't feel a sense of wonder. He knows the end from the beginning. He is a Mighty warrior. He is Almighty. And yet Satan and his forces of darkness are opposing him and God's people and the triumph of the gospel. And as we face the opposition of demonic forces, it will do us well to remember the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. We remember the charge that Moses gave to the people of Israel when the Egyptian army was coming up from the backside of them as they encountered the sea. You remember the dread in the people's hearts. We can't go this way and they're coming. And Moses gives them this instruction in Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you. What's that next word? Today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight That's very important. The Lord will not just simply fight. The Lord will not simply fight against. But the Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be... What is all this babbling? What is all this complaining? What is all this... This fear being exercised from our faces. Just be still and see the salvation of the Lord. The battle is the Lord's. Turn with me please to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. You'll find this on page 979 of one of our church Bibles. Ephesians chapter 6. God has equipped us for battle. God has equipped us for battle. When we think of the armor of God, we all get a certain type of armor in mind. Naturally and rightly, first we think of the Roman soldier. And there are conceptions like this. This is probably not the greatest conception of a Roman soldier, but it's one conception. Paul was under supervision, under arrest, by these types of soldiers, even while he was writing. Another conception we get is when we look at our children's material and they talk about the armor of God and they show an, a knight in shining armor like this. Yeah, alright, well that's a, that's a conception that we get. And then as sophisticated 21st century people, we think of course of Iron Man and it looks kind of like that. <laughs> the, the, the particular pieces of armor, the particular style of armor are not the point. The point is not the generation of the armor for the pieces mentioned in this passage in Ephesians chapter 6 have their roots in the Old Testament and its conception of God conquering and ruling the nations. So it's important for us to recognize all of the the ways this armor functions together, but the point is not the, the armor. The point is what the armor is representing. It is God's armor. He makes this clear. Look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor We need to understand who is fighting for whom. Who is fighting for whom? The fact is that our Almighty Heavenly Father is fighting for us and equipping us for the battle. And while God is fighting for us, we must understand that the battle is... That in this battle, Satan is scheming against us. He tells us that in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes. The schemes of the devil. The word there is methodia. You can hear methods there. It's cunning arts. Paul already used the same exact phraseology in chapter 4 in verse 14 where he says, So that we no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So the church is called to build up the body. The church is called to equip the body, to strengthen the body, to make sure that there's a solid footing for the body because Satan is trying to manipulate manipulate our minds. He's trying to twist truth his methods, his schemes are against the armor of God. To be prepared for the schemes of the devil, the church must do these four things. This is the general outline that we, we see. The church must be, first of all, empowered by God. We see that in verse 10. The church must be defended by God's armor. We see that in verses 11 and 13. The church must be aware Of the source of the conflict. We see that in verse 12. So much of the conflict we face is ordinary, but its source comes from outside of the ordinary. And fourthly, the church must be ready to stand. Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? Has God rescued you? Has He saved you from your sin? And the consequences of your sin, which is an eternal condemnation from the presence of the Lord, has God saved you? If He has, He's placed you into the church. So the call here in Ephesians six is to you; it's to me to stand. God's power, guard God's armor a satanic conflict, a demonic conflict to stand. In order to stand, we must take up the armor of God. That's what it says in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all... I would like you to just keep that tucked away in the back of your mind. I might not even bring it back up again. But the call, having done all. This is not a half-hearted, cavalier, lethargic view of the Christian life. Having done all to stand. Remember, the battle is coming to us. The battle is coming at us. We are not going out looking For the battle. We are not trying to stir up strife and conflict. The battle most times comes in very ordinary parts of life. And in the midst of this battle, we're told to stand, to stand, and the way that we stand is by putting on the armor of God, and so we come to our first piece of equipment. He tells us to put on the belt of truth. Verse 14, Stand therefore. There's the command. Stand therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth. Having fastened on is the way in which we're going to be equipped to stand. The call is to stand. The way we stand is by fastening on the armor. Not one piece, the whole group of it. But the whole group of it is given a description. We have these descriptors. First of all, fasten on the belt of truth. The belt was important for the Roman soldier. It was used to tie up all of the loose flowing parts of his uniform. Here he is. He's about to go out into battle. And he has all of this material. And it's, and it's all flowing. And it's all going to bind him up. It's going to be a problem. Unless he fastens the belt of truth. Taking all the different pieces. Tucking it in. So that he's prepared for the battle. The way we would call it is we would roll up our sleeves. I always like the opportunity to do this, so here we are. We're going to roll up our sleeves. We're getting ready to get the job done. We're we're ready to get our hands dirty. We're prepared. If you do not roll up your sleeves, proverbially in this sense, there are going to be encumbrances. Excessive material is detrimental in the battle. So I, I thought of some pretty cute things for you. You're going to like this. Have you ever seen a hockey fight? It's the best part, right? <laughs> Come on, I'm not the only one that thinks that the fighting is the best part. It's like you go to the Providence Bruins and they're going to, you know, they're playing. You're like, all right, yep. Yes! <laughs> so here's what they do. They're not clean in their fighting. They have, they have a technique. So here's what they want to do. They want to find a way to grab the other guy's jersey and pull it up over their head so they can't see. So this guy's blind and like, now I can really haul off on him. So I I thought that'd be a great thing. That's one thing. Then I thought of another one. I I hope that, you you know, I hope this is great for you as much as it is for me. Have you watched football where, where there's a guy running and someone grabs him by the dreadlocks and pulls him down? I think that has got to hurt. I don't want to be grabbed by my hair, so I shaved it all off. (laughs) Excessive. We we have something sticking out, and it becomes a weapon against us. And so what what God is telling us, make sure that you don't have any excesses coming out, that someone can grab you and pull you down. And how are we going to be girdled, girded with truth? We're going to be girded with truth as we understand what God says. Not our ill-conceived idea of what God says. Not some false teacher's thought about what truth is. But to be able to understand God's Word and establish on a foundation of God's truth. We're not talking now about individual truths. We're talking about the corporate body of truth. A little later on in the armor of God, we're going to see Paul tell us to take up the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. And there we're talking about the ability to utilize God's Word to cut things off. It's very skillful. It's not one of these big things where we're starting to lob people's body parts off. It's a, it's a dagger. It's, a, it's, very, it's much more like a scalpel. It's used to, to cut off excesses. That's individual truth. When we come to the belt of truth, we're talking about this collection of truth. We're talking about similar to what Jude said to the church when he says, we have been called to contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith, the collective body of truths. And how you and I will be prepared for the battle is to understand the collective body of the truth. And so some people are very much against learning organized theology, to learning catechisms, and to be against learning catechisms, and to be against learning theological truth, is to be a fool is to open yourself up to have someone grab you by the hair and yank you down to have someone pull your shirt over your head and give you a left, a right and then an uppercut and there you are knocked out and bleeding we must know the truth that God has given to us this is not my armor this is not my truth. This is not the truth that the Cornerstone Church has figured out. This is God's armor. This is His truth. Interestingly, the unrighteous are said to suppress the truth in Romans 1 and to exchange the truth in Romans 1. The Self-seeking, according to Romans chapter 2 and verse 8, do not obey the truth. On the other hand, our Savior is full of grace and truth, John 1.14. Our Savior said that the truth will set you free, John 8.32. Our Savior said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14.6 Our Savior called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth in John 14.17 and other places. And our Savior prayed that the disciples would be sanctified by God's truth. And then He says, Thy Word, Your Word is truth. We understand that God is the source of truth and He has revealed His truth to us. We recognize with the psalmist That His Word serves as a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We recognize with the psalmist that His Word makes me wiser than my enemies. And we should be allowing the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly, abundantly. And you know what happens when the Word of Christ dwells in us abundantly? The Spirit brings forth the fruitful demonstration of teaching And singing and giving of thanks. The truth is the character of God. The truth has its source in God. And the truth transforms us into the character of God. The truth does this, God is the truth. He's the source of truth. His character is truth. And as we abide in the truth, you know what happens? His truth takes residence within us and operates out through us. We need need to be fastening on the belt of truth. I must seek to know the truth that God has revealed. I must study God's word. I must read God's word. I must meditate on God's word. I must memorize God's word. This is personal, right? It's also corporate. You know what else it is? It's discipleship. It's discipleship. By the way, there's a sign up sheet in this room right here. And the whole design of what's going on on that sign up sheet is that each one of us would be responsible, responding properly to the call to be disciplers and disciplees. There is not a person in this room that should not have their name on that list, and yet many of your names at this point are not on it. And I would call, say to you, in this way, you are failing. To fasten on the belt of truth. And I call you to task. Do not remain foolish in this way. This is a real battle. Satan hates you because Satan hates God and Satan hates the gospel. And the way that God has given for us to stand in the midst of this onslaught that is coming our way day in and day out in the ordinary and in the extraordinary. The way God has has equipped us is to fasten on the belt of truth. Having done some to stand. Oh really? Having done all to stand. Stand therefore having girded Your loins with truth. Having strapped on the belt of truth. That requires corporate study. That requires individual study. And that requires one-on-one sharpening of one another. Ladies and gentlemen, fasten on the belt of truth. We are desperate for this. It's God's armor. And so we sharpen one another with God's truth. I must seek God's power to put the truth on display. The truth, as is has been incarnated in our Savior, should be on display in our lives. Understanding the truth, meditating on the truth, displaying the truth, these are the means whereby we stand on the truth. Standing on the truth prepares us to fend off the attacks of the kingdom of darkness. Satan attacks our concept of God. He's not good. Satan attacks our concept of God's word. There's a better way. There's a more refined way. Satan attacks our concept of God's church. It's not worth it. It's not necessary. Satan attacks our concept of God's child. You're too sinful. You're not good enough. You're not worthy. Who would save and care for someone like you? This is what Satan wants us to think. And what God's Word says is that I am the chiefest of sinners, yes, but Christ came to save the chiefest of sinners. That's me. There is no place you have gone to that God cannot rescue you from. There is no sin that you have committed that God cannot save you from. Jesus' death is sufficient to pay for your every sin. And sufficient is His righteousness to clothe you to be fit for heaven. The truth of the Bible will ably defend us against these lies, and the truth will shape our thinking, our speech, and our actions. We move to the second piece of armor here in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14. It says, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having put on the breastplate, of righteousness, so We put on the breastplate of righteousness. That is our call. To rightly understand righteousness, we must understand the character of God. I'm going to move very quickly. We have a lot to cover in very short time. I made twice the amount of the normal handouts in this office back here. Okay. If you don't catch everything that I say right now, don't Fade out, don't rely on what's coming, but don't get discouraged if you miss some concept. It's it's all written down for you. Stick with me. God's character is a character of righteousness. The Bible tells us in Psalm 11 and verse 7, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all his works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. This is Daniel's confession for the people of Israel. God is right in all of his ways, in all of his words, in his will and his actions. Because he is God, the measurement of his righteousness and the measurement of his righteous standard is derived from his own character. Can you please understand that? Because he is God, the measurement of his righteous standard is derived from his own character. There are no true there are no true standards of judgment that can charge God as behaving or acting outside of righteousness. As an important follow up to this, we must understand God's justice. He is a character of justice. These two concepts are intimately tied. God is right in all he says. God is right in all he does. God is right in all he wills. God is right in every way. And God does not judge arbitrarily. He doesn't come up with a new judgment here and there. He judges in accordance with what he has revealed. So let's take a look, please, at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, you'll find that on page 1003 of our church Bibles. God's justice requires that His righteous standard is met by His creation. God's justice requires that His righteous standard is met by His creation. That is God's justice. We see here in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, we want to understand that God doesn't judge arbitrarily, but instead judges based on, upon what he has revealed verse 12 for the word of god is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of sunder excuse me the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The context is the Word, and the Word is the source of our judgment. Take a look, please, at Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, you'll find that on page 1040 of our church Bibles. This is of utmost importance in understanding, putting on the breastplate of righteousness. At the end of all things, there will be a judgment. Every person will stand before God and be judged. Listen carefully. Everyone will be judged according to his or her works. Listen to what Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11, tells us about this judgment seat. It says in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Who's sitting there? Anyone know? Who? How do you know? According to to John chapter 5, the Father has committed all judgment to me. So Jesus is sitting on this throne. From his presence, the earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. Do we see awe in the things that God has created? Yes, we do. Jesus is the creator, Jesus is the judge. And the creation recognizes his rightful place as judge, which is why it recognizes it can't stand before him. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, rich and poor, smart and not, beautiful and not, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Listen, will you read the end of verse 12 with me? And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The dead were judged according to what's written in the books. And what's written in the books is what they had done. Everyone will stand before the Lord. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death, And Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Is God giving us any secondary reminders of what the judgment is? What they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. Can we summarize this by saying that God is righteous and He requires righteousness? I think we can summarize it with this. God is righteous and He requires righteousness. Jesus, the judge, will stand, will sit on this throne. Others will stand before him, they will be judged according to their works. But the ultimate judgment is your name written in the book of life. Well, what happens when a person's name is written in the book of life? All of the works of that one whose name's written in the book of life, all of their works have been judged already on the cross. Every last sinful thought, word, and deed is judged on the cross. God's just requirements were satisfied by the sin-removing, judgment-producing wrath of God. All of it was satisfied in that payment of Jesus Christ. And in place of those works of the flesh that result in condemnation for those whose names are written in the book of life, the righteous deeds of Christ have been placed on our account. Therefore, when our name is written in the book of life and the books are opened on us, what is seen? Righteousness. Righteousness. Every sin will be judged. And Satan wants to remind us of this in the most dissatisfying way possible. You'll never measure up. You'll never make it. And after we've exhausted that self pity for a little while, you're too narrow. You're too critical. I tried my best. Here's my offering. How can you be mad at me? That's what Cain said. Did everything I could. It's not enough for you. What's wrong with you? Something's wrong with you. There's nothing's wrong with me. I'm fine. You're the problem. You've got the problem. This is what Satan's been saying from the beginning, folks. He wants to warp your minds to think of God as unjust. God cannot be unjust. His nature is just. His nature is righteous. He cannot do one unrighteous, one unjust thing ever. Or he would not be God. But he is. Clothe yourself with righteousness. To these accusations, God tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness keep in mind that partial righteousness will not cut it 75% righteous is not sufficient to cover my sin it's all or nothing you and i we need the perfect eternal Righteousness. The righteousness that cannot be condemned. This is what we need. We need the righteousness that cannot be condemned. It cannot be rightly accused. Every accusation against our righteousness must come to the point of being proved faulty for us to stand embraced on that day. Well Hebrews 9:12 tells us of eternal redemption that is purchased by the blood of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5:21 speaks of a righteousness that has been given in exchange for my sin. Philippians chapter three and verse nine tells us that believers have received this righteousness, not through our own efforts, but through faith in Jesus. Christ in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul has already told us in advance of Ephesians 6.14 how to put on the breastplate of righteousness. How to put it on in our day-to-day walk with God. It's not by being something. It's by putting off who we are. In Ephesians 4 verse 22 he tells us put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, that's Christ, created after the likeness of God in, what does it say? True righteousness and holiness. He's already told us how to put on the breastplate of righteousness and it's not yours and it's not mine. When Satan accuses us, we are defended not by our own works, but by our Savior. I mentioned this in passing last week. I want to mention it directly this week. In 1 John chapter 2 in verses 1 and 2 will be on the screen. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is, he is the propitiation. That means a, a, ma, a, a wrath-removing settlement. A settlement of God's wrath. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of of the whole world we do not rely upon our own character we rely upon our savior he's told us to put on the breastplate of righteousness does this come from within me or does it come from without me it comes from outside it's not my righteousness it's his now when I have put on the breastplate I have put on the whole armor because I can't put on the breastplate and not the rest of it. I've been told, put on the whole armor of God. And then he goes on, Stand therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having strapped onto your feet the gospel of peace, <coughs> Excuse me, having taken up the shield of faith, having put on your head the helmet of salvation, having taken the sword of the Spirit. This is all one package. But we're going through bit by bit, individually. This righteousness. When I've put on the breastplate of righteousness, I've put on the whole armor of God. When I've put on the whole armor of God, I have put on Christ, which means I am walking in the fear of the Lord, which means I am walking in the Spirit. See how all of these things are the same concept. Placing myself underneath the authority of our mighty warrior, placing myself underneath the authority of our Creator who is our judge, who is our Savior, the one who supplies for us. When we take this place underneath the Lord, God is performing in me His righteous standard. I do not believe, and I don't think you do either, that our righteous acts are the breastplate. It is God's armor, not mine. But when I have On his righteousness, he will display his righteous character in me. It will come into my life. It will be on display. The armor of God shapes our character. Do you remember when Goliath came out against Israel, defying the God for whom they stood? Do you remember all of the mighty warriors of Israel were quaking in fear, including King Solomon, or excuse me, King Saul himself. David stepped up. He was ready to fight the champion of the Philistines. You remember that Saul offered to David his armor? You remember? But Saul was too chicken to fight himself. And in similar ways, and in greatly distinct ways, God has offered to us his armor. Except, he's going to fight for us. What an amazing difference. God will fight for us. This is what David knew. The battle... Is the Lord's the battle for the church? Is the Lord's the battle for God's name? Is the Lord's the battle for Jesus Christ? Is the Lord's the battle for the gospel? Is the Lord's the battle for your soul? Is the Lord's are you equipped for the battle? Are you resting on the truth. That God's word clearly delineates. Are you strapping on the breastplate of righteousness? A righteousness that cannot be condemned because it comes from Christ. It lasts and it stands. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We commit ourselves to you. I pray, Father, for anyone in this room that does not know you Dear Father, would you soften their heart, help them to see that their sin, their sin will condemn them, but you have provided an eternal remedy through Jesus. Father, convict of sin and righteousness and judgment and turn their hearts to the Savior that they might embrace him and have life that one day when they stand before their judge, that same judge is their Savior, and there'll be no condemnation for them. No condemnation. It's not possible. Do this. I pray for every believer here, myself included. God, we we struggle, and we've had good or bad weeks. I don't know. But we know we need you. Help us never to rest in ourselves, but to rest in you to believe you, and we pray that we would see the fruit of your spirit and your armor coming out in our lives, that our character would display what your truth, what your righteousness, what your gospel, what your faith, what your salvation, what your word says. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.